The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I'm Dr David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 23rd of February. Lindsay Tichner discusses how high rates of COVID vaccination of the developing world is practically impossible, with Congo as an example. Lindsay also discusses that the widespread scepticism about these vaccines and the distribution of the vaccines are major barriers. Lindsay, tell us about yourself. Okay, thank you, David, for the opportunity to, uh, to chat today. My, uh, my role in Sonic Healthcare is uh, primarily in uh, administration. I look after the Catalyst program and education for Sonic Healthcare. With regards to the Catalyst program, it's a, our social responsibility program that has been operating in Sonic since 1996, actually, uh, it was the first iteration of our support of uh, a hospital in Africa, and that was actually the Fistula Hospital uh, in Addis Ababa that Catherine Hamlin um, set up and, and ran uh, up until her death uh, just recently. Uh, and I had the privilege and the opportunity to go over there and to help establish the laboratory and our continued support, or our support has continued, I should say, since then, on and off and but like all mature um, programs you know we we put a lot of effort in initially and then we we obviously try to encourage um, groups and organizations to be self-sustaining after that now with regards to central africa and particularly in goma in the democratic republic of congo that's i should say that goma a lot of people including myself I'm sure don't know where it is. It's actually in North Kivu province. It's adjacent to Rwanda. The Rwandan border actually runs through part of, uh, of Goma. And of course, it, it has a legacy of that terrible uh, genocide conflict in Rwanda and uh, was certainly involved in that, um, in the sense that a lot of refugees spilled across the border and there's still, unfortunately, bad blood between Rwanda, Rwanda and, uh, and Congo to this day. And in fact, HEAL had its genesis in those days and it was set up to cater for the tragic medical uh, needs of, uh, of refugees and victims of that, uh, of that conflict. We've been involved with them. I think I first went there in about 2009 and we've had a continued relationship with them since then primarily in regards to the pathology laboratory that is operating in the hospital and also with the imaging department, uh, radiology, uh, which is also um, set up there. And we, uh, our support, I suppose, is multifaceted in the sense that we uh, try to send a container over every 12 to 18 months and that container would have um, not only goods and equipment that we uh, can source in Australia and that can't be sourced in Africa because we do try to source uh, as much as we can locally uh, to support the local economy rather than spending our money here and paying to ship the stuff over there. 
but also the containers provide a mechanism for other groups to be able to send their aid uh, of various of various types. For example, the physiotherapy department there is supported by a group of physiotherapists from Melbourne, and we ship across equipment and uh, and uh, and goods for them. But we also, as I mentioned, we uh, we supply reagent to them, and we've sourced that through Uganda in a very responsible uh, place there, um, and also technical support for the equipment. We try to get over to visit the hospitals that we support 12, every 12 to 18 months. Now, obviously, during the pandemic, that's been impossible, and so we haven't been able to do anything with that. We have continued to send containers. We have continued to supply reagent, and we also uh, try to support training too. In fact, Sonic Healthcare paid for the training of the pathologist who works in the hospital in uh, in Goma in Heal, and uh, he is one of only two in the entire region. Goma, I should say, is a city of one million people oh. in North Kivu province, which has around seven million uh, people in it. Of course, Congo's population is over ninety million. I should probably say too, it's the second largest country in Africa, about a third the size of the USA, but very poor. Uh, the citizens exist on average uh, on an income of a dollar a day. But just getting quickly back to the training, the pathologist obviously was trained as was the radiologist. And the radiologist is one of three in the region. There we've helped to advance the training of radiographers and pathology technicians and others as the opportunity has arisen. So those aspects of our support continue unabated. But the more personal one-on-one -on -one contact uh, has obviously had to uh, had to stop. I had no idea that Sonic was doing all these sorts of things, uh, Lindsay. I'm really glad you've informed us uh, yeah. because you know it's really special for us to understand that a private company floated on a stock exchange could have a heart like this. And I, yeah. I really applaud you guys. But having said that, Lindsay, mm. uh, a lot has happened since. And, and the um, COVID pandemic, of course, has just hit Africa with vengeance. You've got eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah. And here, we only have the media. So yes. can you just tell us a little bit about what you have heard and understand are the real issues in sure. Africa because of COVID? But COVID has, has really, if anything, I suppose it's, it's one of the most insidious things is it, it's compounded a pre-existing inequity. You know, the, the effects that we've felt in, in Australia and in the first world of, you know, rising costs, uh, inability to travel, uh, lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera, obviously are more than compounded in places like Goma. And we also, I should say, operate in Tanzania and in Ethiopia still in a couple of locations in South Sudan, et cetera. But in, um, in Congo, it has been really quite telling. Things like lockdowns, which we take for granted. I mean, the majority of people who live in Goma are extremely poor and the, their accommodation are basically small wood cat wood cabins with metal roofs um, just bang up against each other. You couldn't fit cigarette paper between the walls with little lighting, no running water, and certainly 
Congolese living in those areas live on a day-to-day basis. They have to go out and get food. And that can be to the market or to the local fish seller. And certainly they need every day to go to Lake Kivu to source their water supply. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to drive through um, Goma and see long lines of people, hundreds and hundreds of people walking to the to and from from Lake Kivu. So obviously lockdowns are, are virtually um, a, a failure. Things like, too, just things that we take for granted, like oxygen supplies. Um, fortunately, Sonic were able to partner with a couple of other NGOs and helped heal to establish an oxygen plant a number of years ago before the pandemic. But it's only one of two locations that manufacture oxygen. And so you have terrible situation of hospitals over there that have no oxygen uh, at all. And of course, what happens then is the patients who are in dire need of support are forwarded to places like Heal, and there's another hospital that has uh, has quite a reasonable uh, support structure for COVID patients. But often by the time they get there, it's too late or the damage has been done. Um, there are anecdotal stories in March um, or mid last year of traffic jams around the local hospital as relatives came to collect the bodies of their um, of their deceased relatives. And they were, you know, uh, in taxis and in private cars and even carrying bodies home. It, it really is something that is beyond our experience and imagination. Through all of this, though, as is in the case in Australia, you know, you've got the heroes of the situation, which are doctors and nurses who work tirelessly and often at their own peril to, to try to treat and to help. Uh, he'll have one of the only specialist trained emergency physicians in North Kivu and the only specialist trained anaesthetist. And so these two guys have just been traveling all over the region, trying to assist where they can, to give advice, to help, um, to train, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it, it has just been absolutely terrible. The other problem, of course, there is with the vaccination program. And is that something you'd like to talk about? I would now? love to know more about okay. that. There's a number of problems that they're facing at the moment. One of the biggest ones is scepticism. And, you know, we we hear a lot, and in fact, there's the, you know, people in Australia who, for various reasons, have grave concerns about, you know, having the vaccination or, or being vaccinated. Um, but there are also a lot of misinformation that goes out on social media. And, of course, a lot of this has tracked into Africa. And there is already, particularly in, in North Kivu, in Goma, um, suspicion of, you know, um, of white uh, people, first world people. And, and there is quite a strong feeling or rumour going around that the vaccines are an attempt by the white, um, you know, first world to experiment on black people. Uh, to kill black people. And in fact, there was a case in Kinshasa, the capital territory where a man died after being vaccinated with AZ earlier on in the program. And of course that spread like wildfire. And so skepticism is a huge, huge problem. AstraZeneca, I should say, is the preferred vaccine mainly because 
of its um, two to eight degrees. You know, it, it doesn't have to be kept at very low, low, you know, freezing uh, temperatures. And that is in a lot of cases achievable over there. But the problem is distribution. You know, where you have all of the problems of scepticism, you have all of the problems of even not having a reliable electrical system. Every large hospital, every hospital has generated backup and relies on that on a daily basis to run. And so, you know, in the little health clinics in outlying areas, often there is no electricity at all. And so how do you maintain vaccine? Distribution through war-torn areas, there's still conflict going on in North Kivu. It's now also being subjected to Al-Shabaab, kind of trying to extend their influence into the north of, uh, of, of Congo. And so all of these um, things are just coming together. There were vaccination centres that were burnt down by rebels. It's being weaponized, I suppose, is a good way of, uh, of, of putting it. And then you've got the situation where, uh, I think it was in March last year, Again, uh, COVAX donated 1.7 million vaccines to Congo, a country, I should say, of 90 million. So we're talking a very small amount here. But within about three months, 1.3 million of these had to be forwarded on to other African countries because they were reaching their expiry date and there was no way of distributing the, uh, the vaccine. Congo, as I said, is a very large country and, and you have Kinshasa and the capital city on the western side and uh, North Kivu, Goma, Bukavu and, and a whole lot of other of the major kind of centres on the eastern side. And in the middle, there's about 2,000 kilometres of just impassable jungle, no roads. Uh, the only way in and out is by air or a journey that could take months on, on a barge up the Congo River. And so to reach out into the, the regions, into every village um, with a vaccine is impossible. It, and I don't think anyone would argue that point. I mean, the World Health have said that, uh, or estimated, I should say, that by 2022, mid-2022, most of the first world will be effectively vaccinated. You know, those that are going to be vaccinated will be vaccinated and, and will kind of reach, you know, not a saturation point, but certainly a, a, a satisfactory point. Well, the estimates in Central Africa and indeed in the third world that, that that point won't be reached until 2024, if at all. And certainly I would have my doubts extremely uh, uh, doubtful about the opportunity or the, the, the uh, you know, the possibility of being able to, uh, to vaccinate everyone in, in Congo. So, you know, the poor infrastructure too is another thing. Unreliable uh, transport, unreliable communication, no record keeping facilities there is no you know no australian immunization registry there to upload who's been vaccinated or who hasn't and yeah it, it is just your worst case scenario keeping in mind that congo and north kivu you know is is where ebola came from the ebola river is not far from from goma and it has had problems with endemic disease for ages for, for decades and unfortunately, I think people just see this as yet another cross to bear as far as their lives 
are concerned. And so you've painted a terribly sad, tragic almost, and difficult uh, scenario. And, and of course, these sorts of issues become more real when you tell us about it. Mm. Being very selfish over here, Lindsay, I've heard so many people say that COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. It and is. that the pandemic will never end until the world is vaccinated. Mm. But listening to your story, uh, there are parts of the world where these sorts of vaccination programs may very well never succeed. Exactly. And, and I think certainly North Kivu or the, the eastern part of Congo is one of them. Burundi is another. I mean, parts of South Sudan, obviously riven still with conflict and, um, and, and problems. Parts of northern Uganda, Somalia. I mean, the, the situation in Ethiopia currently has flared up again with the Eritrean army on the march and the Ethiopian army going to meet them with huge numbers of displaced people. As I, I can't remember if I mentioned, but in North Kiva, there are 200,000 IDPs currently in camps. Sorry, what's IDP? Internally displaced people, you know, refugees, sorry. Yeah. It's 200,000. 200,000 in North Kivu alone in large camps run by the UN. Again, social distancing, and, and it, it's like a perfect storm. It, it really is. And, and I, I would agree that where you have the inequity that we do have, you know, we're not going to be out of this, this thing. And, and if for no other reason, if it's not for humanitarian purposes, if it's, if it's not for the fact that these, these are people, they're mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, you know, just as we are, they, you know, they, you know, they mourn their, their dead and their departed. If it's not for any of those humane or humanitarian reasons, then for our own sake, this is going to come back to bite us one day. And we need in the first world to be aware of the problem and, and to reach out in whatever way we can. And it just, you know, and I'm not so, please don't think I'm, I'm criticising you know, international organisations like COVAX or, or any of the other very well thought after and, and well-intended programs, but just delivering 1.7 million vaccines to a country of 90 million. Now, there's probably been more since that, but that's the figure I was given by uh, Dr. Justin Paluka, who is the CEO of the hospital at Goma just the other day. I mean, we need to be helping where we can in delivering these vaccines. We need to be helping with, with uh, programs to inform people. And the government, to give it its due in, in Congo, and it, there's a lot obviously wrong with it, but they are trying to put together a program to inform people that, you know, the, uh, the, the, the vaccine is there and that there is a remedy or there is a solution to it. And at least in these larger areas, you know, in, in, as I said, Goma, one million people, uh, the refugee camps outside Goma, you know, around uh, 200,000, Bukavu in the north, you know, half a million. I mean, at least in those large areas, if they could, you know, with our support, and I'm talking from a first world perspective, put in place some kind of assisted vaccine program in those areas, at least it would start to address the problem. But at the moment, whilst vaccine is available, 
It's just not getting where it's needed. It's being greeted skeptically. There are infrastructure, huge infrastructure problems. You know, it's just it's just not working as quickly and as efficiently as it needs to. I think you've just brought it very clearly home to me, Lindsay, that the levels of inequity, sure, there is vaccine inequity, but what's screaming out is wealth inequity. Uh, That seems to be the major, major issue. Exactly. And you've got this terrible situation in in Congo, which estimates are that it's considered to be the richest country in the world resource-wise. I mean, you have huge deposits of gold, of diamonds, of coltan, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, unfortunately, all of these bring with them, you know, corruption and, and, and problems of the time. And we have large Australian companies who are mining in North Kivu. Now, I'm not being critical of anyone at all in this context, but maybe there's an opportunity for Australia to be involved indirectly in assisting there. We don't have, well, last I heard, we don't have an embassy as such or an ambassador represented. I think the ambassador is based in Tanzania or, or somewhere nearby. And they do their best. I'm not being critical of them, but we, we need to be engaged in these countries. If we're there actively with a mining presence and, and involved in a commercial sense, then surely we also have an obligation in the sense of, of a social sense of, you know, a humanitarian, uh, a humanitarian sense. So, you know, it really is something that I think the world needs to lift. Richest country in the world, one of the poorest countries as far as DR citizens' um, income is concerned. You know, a dollar a day is not, um, you know, is, is, is a very, very uh, meagre amount to live on. And costs over there can be high. For example, with testing, there was a directive by the government that rat tests be uh, conducted as, you know, as much as they could in the hospitals. But of course, there was no availability of rat tests. And uh, so the hospitals have to import them and had to import them from Uganda. And of course, the cost of uh, a rat test was around 15 uh, US dollars. Well, there's no way in the world that a, a DRC average citizen could afford to pay that. I mean, that's a, almost a month's salary. And, you know, it's, it's, it, really is a, it really is a problem, really is a problem. Lindsay, the other big problem, it's this, out of sight is out of mind. And for most of us here, we have no idea what's on the ground yeah. there. The stories are so, if you like, sparse, yeah. not even on our radar screen, really. Uh, to think about the issues and the help that's needed, how hidden the problems are from us in Australia. And the second is how little we know about what is being done by people so that we can either uh, support them or advocate with them. So there's a lot of problems here, Lindsay. So what do you make of that? Look, I, I, I do think that, you know, there isn't a lot, as I said, that individuals, as much as we'd want to do, um, can do um, there. And, and particularly, one of the things that you learn very early on uh, working in places like Africa and others is that you really need to concentrate on what you can do. And there are so many needs there that you could get lost trying to fill them all. And you could 
do a little here and a little here and a little here and effectively not do much at all. So we've tried to concentrate and that's why we focus on our support of, um, of, of Heal Africa in Congo. And, and that, as I said, has enabled them to play a role then locally in the problems that they've had there. We can advocate, we can be aware, we can speak out about, um, you know, the inequities that, that exist. There are many NGOs working in Congo. The UN, the UN has one of the largest military bases of, of its, you know, group of military bases anywhere in the world in, in Congo. And, and certainly they do some, some good stuff, but it requires a coordinated approach and it requires a holistic approach, an approach that's, that's driven by need, not by goodwill, if you follow what I mean. You know, we need to assess where the problems are and try and help to address those in a coordinated sense. Um, my take on, on the situation is that it is a, quite a dire one that... You know, we probably have a year or two at the most to really get this right. Otherwise, I think we, you know, it's it's going to come back and haunt us. And South Africa was a, a very good example of that. Once travel opens up again around the world, uh, there are a lot of people in Congo, for example, who, who are traders who travel from Congo to Uganda to buy goods to bring back. Well, none of that's happened. So there has been a kind of an isolation, I suppose, in North Kivu. But if that opens up and, and there's economic pressures that are kind of subjugating the humanitarian reality, you know, it potentially it's, it's going to be very, very difficult, very, very tricky situation. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, you have, in the sense that um, you painted that picture for us, but I'm putting forward to you the mm. fact that because you're so far out mm. of sight in mind, mm. I'm just wondering whether in your and Sonic may choose to put some sorts of updates, I'm not sure, so that people who are interested can follow sure. what's going on. I think that uh, you can do us a great service by keeping us informed. Sure thing. Look, we, we try to, and, and look, I must admit to one of our failings in the Catalyst program, and, and look, we not only, as I said, look after um, a number of hospitals and, and clinics throughout uh, Africa and in five different countries, but we're also involved with the Clontar Foundation in Australia in doing or conducting uh, medicals on the boys that are part of their program in remote locations. And we do that all as part of the Catalyst program. We, unfortunately, uh, Catalyst has been what we at times call a very well-kept secret, even within our organisation. It, it's not something that we've stood up and boasted about. As I said, 1996 was the first, you know, opportunity that we've, uh, we had to act in Africa. But since then, um, you know, we've, uh, we've been in two locations in, in Ethiopia, in Ye in South Sudan, in Arusha, in Tanzania, and uh, shortly in North Uganda, as well as in in Goma and uh, in Congo. What we have tried to do recently is to, we have a newsletter, for example, that goes out to uh, our doctors and we try and include an article on Catalyst and what Catalyst is doing in that newsletter to try and inform 
people more broadly of, of what's happening. Um, it is, I suppose, something, Catalyst is something that has been championed from the very top of Summit. Dr. Colin Goldschmidt, our CEO, is passionate about what we do and it's his support and his drive that has kept us active and engaged all through these uh, these years. He, he is a very, very passionate advocate of Sonic having a position of global almost responsibility. You know, we, we operate globally, we're an Australian company, as you, as you pointed out, but that we do have a responsibility to act and we need to, um, need to do so. But, you know, you're right, we need to let people know more efficiently and more effectively. Same thing, I can make a suggestion. Yeah. Uh, not just newsletters, why not put aside on your website just yeah. a link or a click to yeah. your program and then in it just expose us all to yeah. everything that had been done. We, we do, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> on, our, on our website, if you, if you go to um, the Sonic Healthcare yep. website, you can uh, find uh, there is a, a link there last I, I looked. And we do try to promote um, what we do internally. For example, you know, we have a clinical uh, uh, division and operate IPN, uh, Australian Skin Cancer Clinics, et cetera. And, and so we try to communicate to the, the GPs who, who are engaged with those groups um, about what we do do. And in fact, it's those GPs often who volunteer, put their hands up to come and work with us uh, in the Clontarf uh, activities in in Australia, and so they give of their time and their expertise to uh, to be part of that, as do the nurses and the nursing staff within uh, within IPN. That's certainly uh, supported very strongly by by them. Before we go, Lindsay, I have to confess, mm. I don't know very much about the Clontaff program that you've now mm. mentioned twice, mm. and what sorts of actual help is needed but mm. that doctors can volunteer for what is the clontaf program and if i'm interested how i can get involved sure the clontaf are a, um, a foundation and uh, they can be googled and certainly have a lot of information on it and what they do is they work with aboriginal boys now they work with boys only on the premise that boys Aboriginal boys are more likely to be incarcerated. They are less likely to have good outcomes with education. They are more likely to be involved in drug and alcohol abuse. And, and that's just a statistical norm. Uh, and, and the completion rates of, of education for Aboriginal boys, particularly in remote locations, is, is, is quite low. And so Clontarf have grown to a very large group. Um, they uh, provide services to about 10,000 Indigenous boys across the country in uh, over 100 locations. They have academies based in state high schools, which um, offer support for the boys. For example, they have help with homework and study. They have uh, uh, social support. They, they have workers who work in those uh, in those centres that are mentors and almost uncles and, and some Indigenous workers, some non-Indigenous workers, but all of them really focused on the boys' welfare. They use sport as an attraction. And so, you know, in fact, I'm told, I'm not an AFL follower, but I'm told in the current AFL, you know, hierarchy of best players, that 15 of those uh, Indigenous boys who make up that group are from um, the Clontarf Foundation. And in, indeed, even in rugby league, 
there are quite a number of the Indigenous boys there who have had a uh, uh, support through uh, through Clontarf. And so their head office is in WA, that's where it started. And as I said, it's in every state and territory. Don't think it's yet in Tasmania, but it certainly is everywhere else. And what they are required is every year they try to have a complete medical. There is a medical uh, schedule for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and it, it, it covers mental health, obviously, you know, physical check, et cetera, et cetera, social wellbeing. And so the majority of them are, are conducted by Aboriginal medical centres, but like all medical centres, Aboriginal medical centres often are understaffed or they don't have a doctor there or they're flat out prior, you know, prioritising the needs of the community more broadly. And so in those instances, we send a team of doctors and nurses in, we set up a mobile clinic in the Clontarf Academy room, which is in the, in the schools, I should say, and the boys come in, they have a mental uh, health assessment questionnaire, they have a full uh, physical, including, you know, urine tests, height, weight, you know, blood pressure, glucose, all of those sorts of things, pathology profile, and they see a GP and the GP does a full, a full um, check. And we are finding a lot of boys who come to the program for the first time. It may be the first or the second time they've ever been to a doctor. You know, there isn't the culture of going to your medical centre that is imbued often in remote communities um, because of, you know, difficulty in accessing the medical centres. And so anything that we find is then um, passed along to the local uh, Aboriginal Medical Centre for follow-up. And so we, you know, we just come in, we don't charge, we do not uh, charge anything. Uh, it's at cost to Sonic. And once the, um, once the uh, medical has been done, the reports are passed to the local med AMA, um, Australian Aboriginal Medical Centre, and they manage the boys in an ongoing sense. They have had some really incredible success, Quantaf, with boys, you know, completing their education, going on to university or going on to trades. They get cadetships that they organise. They do simple things like um, facilitating boys to get their learner's permit and, and their licence because they found, for example, in Northern Territory, one of the biggest areas of interaction in a negative sense between police and Aboriginal boys was the fact they were driving without a licence. Um, they could drive, but they didn't have the licence. And so if you give them the licence, you know, it, it kind of lowers that negative, you know, interactivity. And so, you know, little things like that, that, that help getting a tax file number, mm. putting a CV together, mm. getting a birth certificate, you know, all of the things that, that we take for granted and are needed to conduct life in Australia often aren't available. And not only to, you know, ATSI kids, but you know, to a lot of, uh, of underprivileged kids uh, in different locations. And it kind of, you know, brings us to class kind of system, which, which just isn't right. And, uh, and these boys are great kids. You know, we have a lot of fun when we go out there. Um, as I said, at the moment, we, we, um, 
call on doctors who work with IPN and they come and work with us and nurses who also work with uh, IPN come along. We put a team, Sonic pays for everything, accommodation, transport, meals, you name it. Uh, even give you a nice little shirt, <laughs> says Catalyst Program, and, uh, and off we go. Listen, if I'm not in IPM and I'm interested now, what do I do? Well, look, certainly give us a ring. You know, if you go to um, uh, Sonic Healthcare, you can look up uh, the Catalyst Program and there are, or an email, probably even better, there is, um, there is an email address there and certainly drop us a line and, and, you know, we'll register your interest. I mean, it is really worthwhile. It's a great program you know if people with the docs and the nurses who come away from it you know do so with a smile on their face it's it's a really really good opportunity lindsay you've told us another that story of us in australia trying to achieve another degree of equity and mm. i applaud that mm. but i just want to finish off now mm. just with our focus mm. uh, on africa what would your last message be mm. to our gp listeners if anything, be aware of the inequity, the great inequity that, uh, that exists um, overseas. If, you know, there is a, not a lot that we can do on a day-to-day -day basis other than being aware, you know, advocacy, um, support of programs, of, um, of groups that are wanting to, uh, to help in those regions, everything from Rotary all the way through to specific uh, foundations and trusts, I think, you know, it, 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 we've talked about Africa, but, you know, situations, similar situations exist in, in parts of South America and Central America and parts of Asia, certainly in, in the subcontinent too. You know, we are very fortunate in Australia and we've done it tough as, as most of the first world countries done it tough during this pandemic. But if anything, the, the real problem has been the uh, compounding of the inequity of the difference between the first and the third world. Be aware, you know, advocate and just do what you can. If you find something to support, a group to support who are, who are trying to do something, do so in that context. Knowledge is, is, is power. And, you know, I think sometimes if, you know, people are, more people who become aware of these inequities in our world that, you know, without trying to sound too kind of evangelical about it, you know, it, it often, uh, you know, surprised by the lack of knowledge. And I think, you know, it changes us when we're aware of, you know, it changes our personal, how we are, how we deal with other people and, and certainly how we see ourselves and our position in the world. And, and I think we all have a part to play. We've just got to find what that part is. Lindsay, I really value the time you have given us and taking us into, if you like, a position where we can more understand the yeah. challenges that exist. Thank you, David. Thank yeah. you for the time. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points 
and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.